Section 5 of The Scarlet Plague. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Scarlet Plague by Jack London. Section 5. For two days I sheltered in a pleasant grove where there had been no deaths. In those two days, while badly depressed and believing that my turn would come at any moment, nevertheless I rested and recuperated. So did the pony. And on the third day, putting what small store of ten provisions I possessed on the pony's back, I started on across a very lonely land. Not a live man, woman, or child did I encounter, though the dead were everywhere. Food, however, was abundant. The land then was not as it is now. It was all cleared of trees and brush, and it was cultivated. The food for millions of mouths was growing, ripening, and going to waste. From the fields and orchard I gathered vegetables, fruits, and berries. Around the deserted farmhouses I got eggs and caught chickens. And frequently I found supplies of tin provisions in the storerooms. A strange thing was what was taking place with all the domestic animals. Everywhere they were going wild and preying on one another. The chickens and ducks were the first to be destroyed, while the pigs were the first to go wild, followed by the cats. Nor were the dogs long in adapting themselves to the changed conditions. There was a veritable plague of dogs. They devoured the corpses, barked and howled during the nights, and in the daytime slunk about in the distance. As the time went by, I noticed a change in their behavior. At first they were apart from one another, very suspicious and prone to fight. But after a not very long while, they began to come together and run in packs. The dog, you see, always was a social animal, and this was true before ever he came to be domesticated by man. In the last days of the world before the plague, there were many, many very different kinds of dogs, dogs without hair, and dogs with warm fur, dogs so small that they would make scarcely a mouthful for other dogs that were as large as mountain lions. Well, all the small dogs, and the weak types, were killed by their fellows. Also, the very large ones were not adapted for the wildlife and bred out. As a result, the many different kinds of dogs disappeared, and there remained, running in packs, the medium-sized wolfish dogs that you know today. But the cats don't run in packs, Grancer, Hoo-Hoo objected. The cat was never a social animal. As one writer in the 19th century said, the cat walks by himself. He always walked by himself, from before the time he was tamed by man, down through the long ages of domestication to today, when once more he is wild. The horses also went wild, and all the fine breeds we had degenerated into the small Mustang horse you know today. The cows likewise went wild, as did the pigeons and the sheep, and that a few of the chickens survived you know yourself. But the wild chicken of today is quite a different thing from the chickens we had in those days. But I must go on with my story. I traveled through a deserted land. As the time went by, I began to yearn more and more for human beings. But I never found one, and I grew lonelier and lonelier. I crossed Livermore Valley and the mountains between it and the great valley of the San Joaquin. You have never seen that valley, but it is very large and it is the home of the wild horse. There are great droves there, thousands and tens of thousands. I revisited it thirty years after, so I know. You think there are lots of wild horses down here on the coast valleys? But there is nothing compared to those of the San Joaquin. Strange to say, the cows, when they went wild, went back into the lower mountains. Evidently, they were able to better protect themselves there. In the country districts, the ghouls and prowlers have been less in evidence, for I found many villages and towns untouched by fire. But they were filled by the pestilential dead, and I passed by without exploring them. 
It was near Lanthrop that, out of my loneliness, I picked up a pair of collie dogs that were so newly free that they were urgently willing to return to their allegiance to man. These collies accompanied me for many years, and the strains of them are in those dogs there that you boys have today. But in sixty years the collie strain has worked out. These brutes are more like domesticated wolves than anything else. Harelip rose to his feet, glanced to see that the goats were safe, and looked at the sun's position in the afternoon sky, advertising impatience at the prolixity of the old man's tail. Urged to hurry by Edwin, Granser went on. There is little more to tell. With my two dogs and my pony, and riding a horse that I managed to capture, I crossed the San Joaquin and went on to a wonderful valley in the Sierras called Yosemite. In the great hotel there, I found a prodigious supply of tin provisions. The pasture was abundant, as was the game, and the river that ran through the valley was full of trout. I remained there three years in an utter loneliness that none but a man who has once been highly civilized can understand. Then I could stand it no more. I felt I was going crazy. Like the dog, I was a social animal, and I needed my kind. I reasoned that since I had survived the plague, there was a possibility that others had survived. Also, I reasoned that after three years the plague germs must all be gone, and the land be clean again. With my horse and my dogs and pony, I set out. Again I crossed the San Joaquin Valley, the mountains beyond, and came down into Livermore Valley. The change in those three years was amazing. All the land had been splendidly tilled, and now I could scarcely recognize it. Such was the sea of rank vegetation that had overrun the agricultural handiwork of man. You see, the wheat, the vegetables, and orchard trees had always been cared for and nursed by man, so that they were soft and tender. The weeds and wild bushes and such things, on the contrary, had always been fought by man, so that they were tough and resistant. As a result, when the hand of man was removed, the wild vegetation smothered and destroyed practically all the domesticated vegetation. The coyotes were greatly increased, and it was at this time I first encountered wolves, straying in twos and threes in small packs down from the regions where they had always persisted. It was at Lake Temescal, not far from the one-time city of Oakland, that I came upon the first live human beings. Oh, my grandsons, how can I describe to you my emotion, when astride my horse and dropping down the hillside to the lake, I saw the smoke of a campfire rising through the trees. Almost did my heart stop beating. I felt I was going crazy. Then I heard the cry of a babe, a human babe, and the dogs barked, and my dogs answered. I did not know but what I was the one human alive in the whole world. It could not be true that here were others, smoke, and the cry of a babe. Emerging on the lake there, before my eyes, not a hundred yards away, I saw a man, a large man. He was standing on an outjutting rock and fishing. I was overcome. I stopped my horse. I tried to call out, but could not. I waved my hand. It seemed to me that the man looked at me, but he did not appear to wave. Then I laid my hands on my arms there in the saddle. I was afraid to look again, for I knew it was a hallucination, and I knew that if I looked, the man would be gone. And so precious was a hallucination that I wanted it to persist yet a little while. I knew, too, that as long as I did not look, it would persist. Thus I remained until I heard my dogs snarling, and a man's voice. What do you think the voice said? I will tell you. It said, Where in the hell did you come from? Those were the words, the exact words. That was what your other grandfather said to me, Harelip, when he greeted me there on the shore of Lake Temescal, 
fifty-seven years ago. They were the most ineffable words I have ever heard. I opened my eyes, and there he stood before me, a large, dark, hairy man, heavy-jawed, slant-browed, fierce-eyed. How I got off my horse I do not know, but it seemed the next thing I knew I was clasping his hand with both of mine and crying. I would have embraced him, but he was ever a narrow-minded, suspicious man, and he drew away from me. Yet did I cling to his hand and cry. Grancher's voice faltered and broke at the recollection, and the weak tears streamed down his cheeks while the boys looked on and giggled. Yet I did cry, he continued, and desire to embrace him, though the chauffeur was a brute, a perfect brute, the most aberrant man I've ever known. His name was... Strange. How I've forgotten his name. Everybody called him chauffeur. It was the name of his occupation, and it stuck. That is how, to this day, the tribe he founded is called the Chauffeur Tribe. He was a violent, unjust man. Why the plague germs spared him I can never understand. It would seem, in spite of our old metaphysical notions about absolute justice, that there is no justice in the universe. Why did he live, an iniquitous moral monster, a blot on the face of nature, a cruel, relentless, bestial cheat as well, all he could talk about was motor cars, machinery, gasoline, and garages. And especially, and with huge delight, of his mean pilferings and sordid swindlings of the persons who had employed him the days before the coming of the plague. And yet he was spared, while hundreds of millions, yea, billions, of better men were destroyed. I went on with him to his camp, and there I saw her, Vesta, the one woman. It was glorious and pitiful. There she was, Vesta Van Warden, the young wife of John Van Warden, clad in rags, with marred and scarred and toil-calloused hands, bending over the campfire and doing scullion work. She, Vesta, who had been born to the purple of the greatest baronage of wealth the world had ever known. John Van Warden, her husband, worth one billion, eight hundred millions, and president of the board of industrial magnates, had been the ruler of America. Also, sitting on the International Board of Control, he had been one of the seven men who ruled the world, and she herself had come of equally noble stock. Her father, Philip Saxon, had been president of the Board of Industrial Magnates up to the time of his death. This office was in the process of becoming hereditary, and had Philip Saxon had a son, that son would have succeeded him. But his only child was Vesta, the perfect flower of generations of the highest culture this planet has ever produced. It was not until the engagement between Vesta and Van Warden took place that Saxon indicated the latter as his successor. It was, I am sure, a political marriage. I have reason to believe that Vesta never really loved her husband in the mad, passionate way of which the poets used to sing. It was more like the marriages that obtained among crowned heads in the days before they were displaced by the magnates. And there she was, boiling fish chowder in a soot-covered pot, her glorious eyes inflamed by the acrid smoke of the open fire. Hers was a sad story. She was the one survivor in a million, as I had been, as the chauffeur had been. On a crowning eminence of the Alameda Hills, overlooking San Francisco Bay, Van Warden had built a vast summer palace. It was surrounded by a park of a thousand acres. When the plague broke out, Van Warden sent her there. Armed guards patrolled the boundaries of the park, and nothing entered in the way of provisions or even mail matter that was not first fumigated. And yet did the plague enter, killing the guards at their post, the servants at their tasks, sweeping away the whole army of retainers, or at least, 
all of them who do not flee to die elsewhere. So it was that Vesta found herself the sole living person in the palace that had become a charnel house. Now the chauffeur had been one of the servants that ran away. Returning two months afterward, he discovered Vesta in a little summer pavilion where there had been no deaths and where she had established herself. He was a brute, she was afraid, and she ran away and hid among the trees. That night, on foot, she fled into the mountains, she whose tender feet and delicate body had never known the bruise of stones, nor the scratch of briars. He followed, and that night he caught her, he struck her, do you understand? He beat her with those terrible fists of his, and made her his slave. It was she who had to gather the firewood, build the fires, cook, and do all the degrading camp labor. She who had never performed a menial act in her life. These things he compelled her to do, while he, a proper savage, elected to lie around camp and look on. He did nothing, absolutely nothing, except on occasion to hunt meat or catch fish. Good for chauffeur, Harelip commented, in an undertone to the other boys. I remember him before he died. He was a corker. But he did things, and he made things go. You know, Dad married his daughter, and you ought to see the way he knocked the spots out of Dad. The chauffeur was a son of a gun. He made us kids stand around. Even when he was croaking, he reached out for me once and laid my head open with that long stick he always kept beside him. Harelip rubbed his bullet head reminiscently, and the boys returned to the old man, who was maundering ecstatically about Vesta, the squaw of the founder of the chauffeur tribe. And so I say to you that you cannot understand the awfulness of the situation. The chauffeur was a servant, understand, a servant. And he cringed with bowed head to such as she. She was the lord of life, both by birth and by marriage. The destinies of millions, such as he, she carried in the hollow of her pink-white hand. And in the days before the plague, the slightest contact with such as he would have been pollution. Oh, I have seen it. Once, I remember, there was Mrs. Goldwyn, wife of one of the great magnates. It was on a landing stage, just as she was embarking in her private dirigible, that she dropped her parasol. A servant picked it up, and made the mistake of handing it to her, to her, one of the greatest royal ladies of the land. She shrank back, as though he were a leper, and indicated her secretary to retrieve it. Also, she ordered her secretary to ascertain the creature's name, and to see that he was immediately discharged from service. And such a woman was Vesta Van Warden, and her the chauffeur beat, and made his slave. Bill, that was it. Bill the chauffeur. That was his name. He was a wretched, primitive man, wholly devoid of the finer instincts and chivalrous promptings of a cultured soul. No, there is no absolute justice, for to him fell that wonder of womanhood, Vesta Van Warden. The grievousness of this you will never understand, my grandsons, for you are yourselves primitive little savages, unaware of aught else but savagery. Why should Vesta not have been mine? I was a man of culture and refinement, a professor in a great university. Even so, in the time before the plague, such was her exalted position, she would not have deemed to know that I existed. Mark, then, the abysmal degradation to which she fell at the hand of the chauffeur. Nothing less than the destruction of all mankind had made it possible that I should know her, look in her eyes, converse with her, touch her hand, ay, and love her, and know that her feelings toward me were very kindly. I have reason to believe that she, even she, would have loved me, 
there being no other man in the world except the Chauffeur. Why, when it destroyed eight billions of souls, did not the plague destroy just one more man, and that man the Chauffeur? Once, when the Chauffeur was away fishing, she begged me to kill him. With tears in her eyes she begged me to kill him, but he was a strong and violent man, and I was afraid. Afterwards I talked with him. I offered him my horse, my pony, my dogs, all that I possessed, if he would give Vesta to me. And he grinned in my face and shook his head. He was very insulting. He said that in the old days he had been a servant, had been dirt under the feet of men like me and of women like Vesta, and that now he had the greatest lady in the land to be servant to him, and cook his food and nurse his brats. You had your day before the plague, he said, but this is my day, and a damn good day it is. I wouldn't trade back to the old times for anything. Such words he spoke, but they are not his words. He was a vulgar, low-minded man, and vile oaths fell continually from his lips. Also he told me that if he caught me making eyes at his woman, he'd wring my neck and give her a beating as well. What was I to do? I was afraid. He was a brute. That first night, when I discovered the camp, Vesta and I had a great talk about the things of our vanished world. We talked of art and books and poetry, and the chauffeur listened and grinned and sneered. He was bored and angered by our way of speech, which he did not comprehend, and finally he spoke up and said, And this is Vesta Van Warden, one-time wife of Van Warden the Magnate, a high and stuck-up beauty, who is now my squaw. Eh, Professor Smith? Times is changed. Times is changed. Here, you woman, take off my moccasins and lively about it. I want Professor Smith to see how well I have you trained. I saw her clench her teeth and the flame of revolt rise in her face. He drew back his gnarled fist to strike, and I was afraid and sick at heart. I could do nothing to prevail against him, so I got up to go and not be witness to such indignity. But the chauffeur laughed and threatened me with a beating if I did not stay and behold. And I sat there perforce by the campfire on the shore of Lake Temescal and saw Vesta, Vesta Van Warden, kneel and remove the moccasins of that grinning, hairy, ape-like human brute. Oh, you do not understand, my grandsons. You have never known anything else, and you do not understand. Halter broke and bridle-wise the chauffeur gloated while she performed that dreadful menial task. A trifle bulky at times, Professor, a trifle bulky, but a cloud alongside the jaw makes her as meek and gentle as a lamb. And another time, he said, we've got to start all over and replenish the earth and multiply. You're a handicap, Professor, you ain't got no wife, and we're up against a regular Garden of Eden proposition. But I ain't proud. I'll tell you what, Professor. He pointed at their little infant, barely a year old. There's your wife, though you'll have to wait till she grows up. It's rich, ain't it? We're all equals here, and I'm the biggest toad in the splash. But I ain't stuck up, not I. I do you the honor, Professor Smith, the very great honor of betrothing to you my and Vesta Van Warden's daughter. Ain't it cussed bad that Van Warden ain't here to see? End of Section 5